Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Hey, everyone. This is Adam Justice. A few weeks back, myself and my colleague Steve had the opportunity to travel to Mountain View and attend a Google Smart Home Summit all about some of the new technologies that they are working on to improve the smart home experience with Google Assistant. In this episode, we wanted to share with you some of what we learned. Hope you enjoy the show. I'm joined by my co-host Adam Justice from ConnectSense, as well as our special guest this week, one of Adam's colleagues, Steve Sanders. Today we're going to talk about some of the new smart home initiatives that Google has been working on. But before we get into the smart home talk, I have a question for Adam, as always, to start off the show. So Adam, I have a feeling you and I would have very different answers to this question based on our respective ages. But I am curious what the earliest media format was that you owned or used in your lifetime for both video and audio. Yeah, as you said, uh, will definitely age me. I'm a, I'm a kid of the 80s, uh, was born in 83. So definitely cassette era for audio stuff. I think we talked a little bit about uh, on a previous question about the little like single cassette thing I had. Um, which may have been my first media, but I remember owning quite a bit of cassette tapes and things like that and taping stuff off the radio uh, and all <laughs> yep. that. I'm sure I still have tapes with stuff taped off the radio out in the garage that I haven't dumped yet. Yeah. And then as far as video goes, uh, probably all VHS had a ton of VHS stuff, but didn't really have a a massive collection. Like I know we had a lot of stuff in the house and for the kids we had all the the Disney stuff things like that and uh but I really didn't start collecting video until I got to college and I spent way too much money on DVDs. Oh yeah. I've said that if if I had a time machine and I could go back and give myself like one piece of financial advice would be like don't buy CDs or DVDs like it's just not going to be worth it. I know you disagree on this and you're still a physical media guy, but when I look back at the the money I spent on DVDs that I will never watch again and all that stuff being available on streaming today, I'm kicking myself a little bit. Mm, okay. That, that is an interesting and yes, different perspective than I have on stuff because I do still buy physical media for product. So I'm curious, Steve, are your answers going to be much different? Uh, yeah, I mean, mine are, are pretty much identical. I remember having the giant stereo with the two tape decks in it, so you could copy the <laughs> yep. the tape. Um, yeah, and I remember 
watching Aladdin and Toy Story on VHS when I was a kid, but I don't remember any, anything before that. All right, fair enough. Well, I can one-up you both on audio then. Of course, VHS was my earliest video format as well. But for audio, I had and purchased quite a few LPs, vinyl LPs and vinyl singles when I was a kid. So I also probably still have many of them hanging around in the house somewhere. Very fun. Well, it's it's coming back, you know, that's back in fashion now. So you can get a digital turntable and all, all kinds of cool stuff now. So, uh, you know, wait long enough and that stuff comes back around. It's just like ties. It's just like ties. You keep them long enough and they come back in style. All right. Well, if you have a question for Adam or for me, you can submit your questions to us through Twitter using the hashtag AskAdamAndRichard. Adam, why don't you introduce our guest this week? Sure. So uh, as Richard said earlier, I wanted to welcome my colleague, Steve Sanders. So Steve is one of our developers and uh, very focused on all things Google. We like to keep some diversity around here, too. So we uh, we have to have somebody who's focused on Android and Google initiatives, and, and Steve's all about that stuff. So he worked on our, our Google Assistant integration and um, has focused a lot on, on our Android apps as well. So Steve, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think you summed up my role pretty well in my primary responsibility is working on the ConnectSense Android app, but I've also been spearheading the Google Home, Google Assistant integration. Yeah, other than that, I'm a, a smart home aficionado outside of, of work. I have a, a pretty decent-sized SmartThings Z-Wave set up in my house. Um, a few other products sprinkled in, but that's that's my primary smart home setup. Very good. Smart home aficionado. Wow. <laughs> I feel I feel kind of subpar as a smart home geek. I don't know. Maybe I overhype myself, but yeah, that, <laughs> that's the first word that came to mind. I think it's good. I like it. You'll have to go back and listen to our last two episodes where we talk about all the crap we have in our houses, and then uh, then you might uh, change your choice of words there. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, before we get into our discussions for this week, I wanted to do a little bit of follow-up. We have some follow-up from a listener on one of our previous episodes, and we also have some follow-up from Adam about some updates to stuff in his house. So we'll start with some listener follow-up. Larry wrote in after our outdoor episode and he wanted to bring Rain Machine to our attention as one of the potential outdoor irrigation solutions. He said that he's had uh, a lot of success with that. And there's an eight zone controller that's very good. And Adam, I had kind of forgotten about this product entirely when we went through our list. I had never heard of this product entirely, so <laughs> it was new, new to me, and I was pretty impressed, actually, when I saw it. You know, it's got most of the good integrations. It works with HomeKit, um, Amazon, Google, IFTTT, uh, SmartThings, so um, it checks a lot of the boxes, and Larry had specifically said he looked at this against Ratio, and it, it came in a little bit cheaper and, and did a lot of the things he wanted to do, so... Uh, I guess, apologies that we left this out of our list. It, it seems to be a pretty good offering. 
Yeah, good stuff. And then, Adam, there have been some updates to products with HomeKit compatibility. So you have some new capabilities going on in your home. I know, finally. Hopefully we can just whittle this list down <laughs> over time. But, you know, there's I, I bought a few things on the promise that someday they will get HomeKit. And uh, within the span of one week, two of those devices got uh, got checked off the list. So um, one that we've known is coming for a while was the Arlo Pro 2. And so they, they kind of had a little bit of a whoops announcement in their app uh, a couple months ago. But uh, no firmware for that. Well, now we actually finally have firmware as well as uh, as the app update. So I was able to add my my Arlo cameras, um, which if you, you may remember from our last show, I use as a fancy baby monitor, and now I'm able to uh, use those in HomeKit, and uh, works great. Uh, I would say it, it works better than the Arlo app. Um, to do it through HomeKit, and uh, I finally have a re- reason to use uh, Aaron's HomeCam app as well. So I will be checking that out more regularly. Very cool. And then the other one, um, I literally just did this update last night, but the LG had been promising uh, AirPlay 2 and HomeKit on uh, my C9 OLED, and... Um, I think it's been out for a week or so, but uh, hadn't had the chance to to uh, do that update yet. And so I uh, got that all paired with HomeKit, and it's working. So um, I haven't played around with it too, too much, but I, I definitely like the ability to control those things. And I will uh, definitely be thinking hard about how I can integrate that into some of the HomeKit automations and scenes that I'm doing. So what do you think? Do you think this is uh, a sign? Might we actually see ring integration before the end of the summer? I don't know. I'll I'll believe that one when I see it. (laughs) I know there was lots of talk on Twitter after Arlo dropped that, uh, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, time for ring to to get it done. So uh, maybe maybe they'll feel a little bit more uh, competition coming now that Arlo's done. But um, yeah, be great to see that. Always good to see these devices um, adding HomeKit to their to their mix. Absolutely. All right. Well, when Google I/O happened earlier this year, we had an episode where we really focused on the Google devices and the Google ecosystem. But as I understand it, you were recently at the Google Smart Home Developer Summit, and that really dives a lot deeper into just you know what the capabilities are going to be what you're going to be able to get out of these ecosystems so i'm curious to hear what you learned yeah so i mean i think the the folks at google probably realize that io is such a huge event and it's tough for you know folks like us focused only on the smart home stuff to justify you know being a part of that that larger event and so you know, they really wanted to hold some separate events just for smart home folks to really dive in deep on some of these new new things. So, so Steve and I were able to go out there. Um, this was hosted in Mountain View on Google's campus, which was nice. I had been to Google before, but Steve had never had a chance to uh, to see Android Land and uh, all the things Google in Mountain View. So we were out there um, just for a day. And uh, got to go deep on a couple different things. So 
you know, the, the, the invite was around a discussion of the local home SDK, new types and traits, and other amazing things we announced during IO19. So you know, what was great about this event was um, not only were there other smart home developers in the room, but there was also probably, I don't know what you would say, Steve, uh, 20 Google engineers in the room. Yeah, there were people spanning from the engineers who are actually writing these new features, architecting the local home SDK, for example, to they have developer advocates dedicated to helping developers get into the Google Home ecosystem. So it was a great representation there. Yeah, and I think anytime you get access to, you know, to the engineers actually working on stuff like this, it's just a great opportunity for folks like us to really sit down, explain what we're trying to do as a manufacturer, um, what we're interested in, get to see how they're thinking about these problems and and how they're trying to solve them. So I I really appreciated that access and the chance to talk to those folks. That's fantastic. Now, how many people typically attend this event? I think this was a brand new event um, for them. And, um, some of the folks mentioned they were going to do the same event, I believe, in Asia, um, one in Australia, and maybe one in Europe. So they were going to kind of do this a couple other places around the world. But yeah, as far as I would say, there was maybe 40, 30, 40 people in the room of, of other developers and people attending. Wow, that that's a fantastic size, considering the amount of the Google team representation you talked about earlier that's kind of i don't know i I can't imagine any other company i know that's doing that in this space right now yeah i mean just really great access and and really good willingness to answer questions um i didn't hear any like we can't tell you that questions um which you know some of the other partners probably would be like but yeah i'd love to see more of this kind of stuff with some of the other ecosystems um and I think it's just a way to obviously they have some new technologies that they want to get out there. Um, it's a great way for them to get people jump started on on those things. So we wanted to jump into what some of those technologies were and talk a little bit about them. So I'll give you the high level, and um, Steve can dive into some of the more technical stuff. So. The first one that we heard about in our time out there was this thing called app scan. So the problem I believe they're trying to solve here is that when you go into the Google Home app and you want to set up a Google Assistant integration, that list is getting really long. And there's a ton of different manufacturers in there. And uh, I hope you know, you find one that's early in the alphabet. I guess we have, being ConnectSense, we have that uh, blessing that we're a little bit earlier <laughs> in, in the alphabet. But, I mean, there's a ton of ton of developers in there, and it's hard to find stuff in that list. And when you say Google Assistant, is is this the list that comes up if I go into Google Home and say, add a smart device to my home? Exactly. Yeah. This is okay. where, this is where you'd be doing that kind of integration for that skill or what what exactly do they call it, Steve? Uh, yeah, Richard, I think you described it correctly. So you go into the Google Home app, you say, I want to add a new device, and then you dig through a, a giant list of, of manufacturers. So um, what they're doing here in, in this app scan is 
they're going to actually look on the local device, whether that be an Android phone or iOS, and see what apps you have on your phone, and then use that to bubble up the manufacturers that you are most likely wanting to connect with. So to me, it just seems really, really simple. Um, you know, we're, we just have to provide as a manufacturer a little bit of information around our app, and then they're able to do this, which should, in theory, provide a, a better user experience. Hmm. That's actually pretty smart. I, I, assuming that the manufacturer has an app or that you need the app installed if you're going to use it with Google Home. Now, is that a requirement? Because in HomeKit, it's not. No, I don't think it's a requirement. I, you know, I think it's just a way to provide a better experience. Um, you know, if people don't want to do this, then you know they can just be part of the list of I don't know how many are in there, hundreds. Hundreds. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of actual effort, uh, it shouldn't be too too deep of an effort for manufacturers to just provide this information to Google and then enable this feature. Nice. So the next one on the list here was a feature called App Flip. So I think to start out and understand this problem, maybe Steve, you can first explain kind of how OAuth works today with Google Assistant. Yeah, sure. And this is actually very similar between Scala uh, and Google Home setup. So uh, generally the way it works is you'll pick your manufacturer in this case, it will open a web view inside of the Google Home app in which you'll log in with your credentials for that manufacturer's account. The problem there being often people won't remember which email address did I use to create an account for this manufacturer, for example. Yep. So it's sort of a, a separate flow outside of the, the login flow that you've already done with that manufacturer's app. So You'll go to this web view, you'll enter your credentials. If you did it correctly, it'll send back a code to Google, uh, which then they'll use to authenticate with the manufacturer's uh, cloud servers. I would think the other problem, too, here is that you get to that screen and you're like, oh, I don't remember what my password is for um, for this particular manufacturer. So I think that, too. Yeah, I mean, it's the user ID or the password. And... The other thing is that sometimes, even if it is all legit, it's just kind of weird that you're being asked by some other, that you're being asked while you think that you're in one app for your credentials for another app or another system. And it makes people feel a little bit insecure. Right. Yeah, definitely a way where, you know, it might give somebody pause and then say, eh, you know what, I don't, I don't want to do this. So what this new experience is, is where you would actually hop directly from the Google Home app specifically into the developer's app. So in our case, you'd hop into the ConnectSense app, and in that app, you would authorize the integration in a native screen. So I've seen this done elsewhere between other apps. I think probably one of the places I've seen this done is like Facebook authentication, and some of those other types of sign-ins, but it's definitely a much more friendly experience where you're taken to the other app, you're able to just authorize it, you don't have to sign in again. So it, I think it's a, a good opportunity to have a, a much smoother experience. Now, I assume this isn't just going to 
suddenly work. If you're an app developer and you want to support this mechanism, you probably need to do something to your authentication process to enroll it in this, right? Yeah, that's correct. You'll you'll need to add code to both your Android and iOS apps. It's going to be different for the different platforms. But yeah, you're right. There will be some work involved to, to get it going. Yeah, I think in, in general, the order we're covering these are in terms of the easiest to the hardest. So this one's kind of a medium level <laughs> effort and uh, definitely something we're already looking at uh, for our stuff as well. That makes sense. The first one was the easiest. It's really just show up with an app. Yeah, exactly. Give us a little bit of details about your app. But yeah. So now uh, we're going to take a quick break from our sponsors, if we do have one, and we'll return with more smart home discussion after that. Okay, so next on the list, which I think is probably the the biggest topic here of everything that was discussed at, at the Google Summit, was around the Google Local Home SDK. And so... What this is, um, is they're actually now allowing commands to go directly from Google Home devices to smart home devices on the local network. And so this was something that was announced at I.O. And it just launched into Dev Preview this month in July. And it'll be launching out to users in October. Steve, do you want to tell us a little bit more about kind of some of the things going on behind the scenes here? Sure. So I guess just for background on how your current smart home voice command flow works. So um, let's say, for example, I say, hey, turn on. It's probably going to trigger everyone's devices. Um, <laughs> a funny fact about that. So uh, in any talk that Google gives about this, they learned to say hey g so in all of their examples they say hey g turn on the lights anyway so i say hey g turn on the lights it will send that voice command up to google servers well they'll do the natural language processing they'll decide okay this is a smart home command they'll parse that into a command to send to the appropriate providers cloud servers the cloud servers will receive that command and then do whatever translation they need to do to send that command down to their devices, and then the device will process that command. So there's a cloud-to-cloud hop involved, which will obviously introduce latency in a lot of cases. So what they're trying to do is remove that cloud-to-cloud hop. So now the cloud is still involved for the natural language processing. So I'll give the command to the speaker, It will go up to Google's cloud. It will come back down to the speaker. The speaker acts as a hub to send that command to the devices over the local network. So it takes out the one hop to the provider's uh, cloud down to the device. Interesting. I think the major goal of this was just to reduce latency. You know, it, it removes that cloud trip. Also, I think one of the things they talked about, too, was it adds a layer of redundancy too. So now local becomes the default and what they want to try to do. But if for some reason that's not working, they can fall back to the cloud to cloud integration. Right. Okay. So I 
I guess I'm a little bit confused because I could have sworn that at Google I.O., I heard them say that they were going to be moving voice processing down to the devices as well. And that that's that's not the way it works yet. Um, so they, at this talk as well, they definitely strongly suggested that it may be moving in that direction. So okay. I think I think ideally that's probably the long term plan. And I guess I could definitely see, you know, maybe some subset lives locally, and then if it can't figure that out, it sends it up to the cloud, for example. But I'm just speculating now. Yeah, that would make sense. One of the interesting things I learned here uh, was. You know, I think everybody kind of comes at problems with what they know and what their background is. And in Google's case, they had Chrome and Chromium and Chromecast. And that's what Google Home devices are. That's what they're all based off of. So I think some of that like local voice processing stuff will be a matter of how good the hardware is. Um, Because one of the nice things about this local home stuff is that it'll work across even Gen 1 Google Home devices. I would guess when they get around to doing local voice processing, that's probably not going to be the case. There's going to be some hardware um, things that might get in the way of doing that kind of stuff. Sure. But yeah, as part of actually doing this, um, maybe Steve, you can talk go into this further, but the developer is actually writing JavaScript, which then gets hosted on the Google Home device. Yeah, so it's kind of crazy how this this works out in practice. Um, because if you if you told someone that to do this local home integration, you're writing JavaScript to run in a web browser to talk to devices, they would think that you're crazy. But that's as Adam suggested, that's the nature of the device, and so they were they were working around the restrictions that they have. So the way the development process works is you're literally creating a web page with your JavaScript just running in it like any other web page and testing it through the Chrome web browser developer tools. And that's how it sends the commands. So when you go to deploy that later, that JavaScript essentially running in a web browser on that uh, Google Home device is taking the place of your uh, cloud processing piece before. So uh, similarly to what I described earlier, where Google is sort of parsing the voice commands, translating that into a command for you to execute. The format looks exactly the same from me, the developer perspective, whether it is running in the cloud or locally. So they wanted to recycle a lot of the the format that the developers were already familiar with. So my JavaScript running in this web browser on the speaker receives these commands and then translates them into the necessary uh, local network commands. I would argue that JavaScript running on a device isn't all that new. I mean, that certainly that's kind of the idea behind Node.js. Is this, is this at all related to that? Or, I mean, you were very explicitly describing this as a web page, which seemed kind of unusual. Yeah, it is not a web server. It's not a Node.js server. It is a web browser running JavaScript. Um, But yeah, to your point, my background is primarily in web development. So this totally made sense to me too. Um, But I could, I could see that being kind of a, a red flag to certain people. 
So I think one of the other kind of interesting things here that I'll give Google some credit for is that it was clear that they didn't really want to force people to do something new or make this protocol too strict versus other, you know, so you might say like, okay, well, who else has local protocols? Essentially, HomeKit is a local protocol. But I think the difference is Apple specifies how everything is done on that protocol. And it's kind of their way or the highway. With Google, they wanted to take into account that some people probably already have local means of communicating with devices. And if that's the case, they want them to have to do as little a work as possible to support this. So as far as you know, discovery of the devices, they support MDNS, UDP broadcast, and UPnP. Uh, and then as far as control goes, you can talk to it via HTTP or HTTPS, um, TCP or UDP. So there's a bunch of flexibility there um, so that if you already have this implemented, you can use what you already have. Those are all pretty common protocols that people would use to do these kinds of things. And if you're implementing it from scratch, you can do what makes the most sense for your device. So everything that you talked about there is kind of IP-based, if you will. Where does this new Bluetooth connection stuff fit into that? I mean, we know that they're doing direct connections with Bluetooth bulbs, with E by GE, and we know also that other manufacturers are looking at replicating that experience. Sylvania has talked about that, and there are some others in the works is was that discussed at all, or is that a completely different thing? Uh, that is a completely different thing. So I, I actually brought that up with them because um, one thing I really liked about the the C by GE setup is it sort of uh, replicates the the easy provisioning that you see in something like HomeKit. Uh, and the way they described it to me is that that process does not support Wi-Fi devices at this point. So. Right. It can be used for Bluetooth devices. It cannot be used for setting up Wi-Fi devices or for local home control like we're discussing. So it seems like right now that that is a completely separate thing. But if you're developing for those devices, is the process of developing some sort of you know control mechanism for it similar? They didn't really go into that too much. Um, it sounds like that's more something they're working closely with companies that are doing bluetooth stuff on okay Okay. but but that's a pretty separate initiative to this one so this one was more focused on devices that are always on the network via wi-fi or ethernet something like that right okay that makes sense i i like though that they're starting to think about also branching out to support the bluetooth devices because we're seeing more and more of those in the home and certainly bluetooth prevalence in the home and getting those systems to mesh properly and everything is getting more and more complicated. So I hope that that's something that they're taking as seriously. Yeah. And to add to what Steve said too, you know, we talked to him a little bit about the, the getting on the network piece and it sounds like they're certainly thinking about it and that they would love to have an experience similar to what uh, Apple users can do with HomeKit, but they hadn't really figured out the right way to do that without putting too much burden on both the manufacturer and the user. Oh, oh, I know what they should do. They should go talk to the people 
that were working on the Google at home project about five years ago and see how they were going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I think in general, you know, things have been constantly in motion at Google. And so it's good to see them, I guess, kind of coming together around some, some particular plans. There was even talk there that um, Weave is not dead. Apparently, Google Weave is dead, but Nest Weave is not. And so that still lives on. And they're still doing a lot of stuff around that and Thread and kind of all the other initiatives at Nest. So I think they're kind of pulling that together with these kinds of initiatives around Google Assistant and trying to put together the best user experience as possible. That makes a lot of sense. And, and actually, let's talk about that for a second. So the Weave stuff is really important, too, because part of the reason that all of this is so front and center right now is because of the sunsetting of the Works with Nest program. If you previously integrated with products through Works with Nest, now you're going to have to use Google Home integration. And so they promised that they were going to beef that up quite a bit to be able to get closer to the capabilities that Works with Nest offered. This doesn't look like it's going to do all of that, but it still uh, takes it quite a long way. Now, the Weave stuff, even with Works with Nest going away, Weave integrations that exist are going to continue to work going forward from a hardware to hardware integration perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I almost feel like I have to go back to, uh, you know, CS 101 stuff and talk about like the different layers of the protocol. But <laughs> we won't go into all that, but only to say that like there are different layers to solve problems on. And so a lot of the stuff we're talking about here are like network layer things. I believe Weave is more of like an application layer protocol. And so there are different problems and different solutions that need to be brought to the table at every different layer to, to make for a good user experience here. Yep. Cool. I don't know, Steve, anything more to add from a, a technical perspective here about, about all this or, or what you're excited about in terms of uh, you know, what we might do with this? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just excited in general, both as a developer and as a consumer, to see them making attempting to make legitimate uh, user experience improvements. So they're looking at all parts of the process. They're trying to make the setup easier. They're trying to make the actual execution of commands easier and more reliable. So it's just really encouraging to see them trying to push this all forward. Awesome. So now we're going to take on a question from uh, listener Kurt. So he sent over a question that said, I'd like to get some security cameras from my mother's property. And I was wondering if we had some recommendations for wireless outdoor cameras that I should look into. So Richard, what do you think here? Yeah, you know, we've talked about a bunch of different products that we use. But as I was looking around and certainly with the news this week of Arlo getting HomeKit support, Arlo Pro and in particular the Arlo Pro 2 is kind of getting CNET's best of the batch badge these days. They seem to believe that that's really the the best alternative out there. And that was even before the HomeKit support was in place. You know, we knew that that was going to be coming. So that's a product that I think everybody that I've talked to has been 
pretty satisfied with. And that would be my primary recommendation there. I also, though, wanted to just kind of bring the other end of that spectrum in, which is a much tighter closed ecosystem, but the Blink cameras that are, that's a company that's owned by Amazon and the Blink X-T2 in particular just came out recently. That's the second generation of their outdoor camera. You can buy those with a base for under a hundred bucks and they do a pretty good job, but I don't think you're going to find the range is going to be good as good with those as you might find with the Arlo Pro. The thing that they have going for them is crazy long battery life. They use two AA lithium batteries and they claim they can get as much as two years out of them. Now, that's going to be with like 15 second slices and lowest sensitivity and no audio and stuff like that. But even still, that's a pretty amazing claim. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I still, that stuff still blows my mind. And, and, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with they have some really good custom silicon in right. their in their cameras that is super optimized for for battery life. Right, exactly. My experience with the Arlo Pro is that they'll last like three to six months, depending on how often you use them on a charge. So I think it sort of depends on where you want to put it and how difficult it'll be to um, grab the camera and charge it. It charges super fast, so it's not really a big deal. And they have these awesome magnetic mounts. So it makes the process of, it's not like you're uninstalling it. It literally just sticks up there on magnets. But that also might want to be something you think about in terms of theft too. I would hate to see one of those cameras walk away. I don't know how many people know that those are magnetically mounted and would steal them, but that wouldn't be, you wouldn't have a good time if that happened. That's a really good point. I believe that in this case that Kurt's mom lives in more of a rural environment. So that would probably be less of an issue there. And this is just more for kind of safety and security. Awesome. And uh, I mean, the other one that you had in here too was that there are some rumors of an upcoming Wise outdoor camera. What Do you have any experience with the, the Wise stuff so far? Don't. But, you know, everybody I talk to who's using them just swears by it. And I, I think the, the swearing by it has more to do with the fact that, holy crap, this is a $20 camera. If it does anything, it's got to be good, right? But they've continued to improve the platform. They just added person detection with AI logic that they've burned into the firmware now through an update. So they are... They're a company to look at, but like you said, this is a rumor. We don't know when the outdoor camera is coming out. They have talked about putting out an outdoor camera, but they've provided no timelines. Okay. All right. Well, if you have a smart home question for us, you can send it our way with the hashtag AskSmartHomeShow, and we'll pick a few questions to include in upcoming shows. All right. Now, uh, Richard, where can everybody find you on the internet? Best place to find me is at the Digital Media Zone if you want to find my podcasts or writing. And speaking of writing, you know, last time we spoke about my mailbox use case, 
I actually wrote that up and posted that out on the DMZ. So if you're interested in how I pulled that off, you can check that out there. And I am on Twitter at Richard Gunther. How about you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Justice. Uh, and of course, find everything that my company's doing at ConnectSense.com. Uh, Steve, you want to tell everybody where to find you? Uh, sure. I am on Twitter at Stephen D. Sanders. Uh, I mostly tweet technical web development type stuff. I also just started a podcast within the last month or so. We talk about TV. It's called the Episode Ninja Podcast and uh, connect sense, like Adam said. Great. And uh, of course, the Smart Home Show is part of Technology.fm, a collection of tech-focused podcasts, including Home Tech FM, The Food Tech Show, and of course, Richard's other show, Home On. Hey, and we should tell people that we have a .fm now, too. Yes, uh, I was going to do that, too. So uh, you can find all of these episodes and show notes and all that kind of stuff at smarthome.fm. And then, of course, um, you can find us in Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and anywhere else that you get podcasts uh, on the web or apps. Uh, do us a favor as well and leave us a rating or review and uh, tell a friend about the show. So... Thanks for joining us, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.